Let's open the precious Word of God to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. For those listening to this by any other means than this assembly, we have had read in our presence this morning Isaiah 44 verses 18 through 20 where He hath blinded their eyes, speaking of the judicial judgment of God upon the pagan nations who had rejected the knowledge of God revealed by several different ways. We have had read to us 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, where the New Testament teaches the same doctrine that God sends strong delusion to believe lies upon those who do not receive the love of the truth. And we had read 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, where our beloved brother Paul charged Timothy with a very sober and serious charge to preach the word. It is part of our reflection upon our church and upon our faith, our religion, that we sometimes encounter the ancients, men that came before us, whether a 100 years ago, 400 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and we have to confront ancients. And if we differ from those ancients, are we bold enough? And do we understand why we differ from those ancients? Right. We see around us churches that are growing so fast and their gospel and their practice is different from ours. And we need to be able to reassure ourselves that we are following the truth and they are not. Because we need to remember that results prove nothing except that you're not preaching the truth. A growing church of the kind I'm referring to, the mega churches, are proof by one thing initially that they cannot be preaching the truth. And that's because the people that are flocking into them. Because the truth has always been held by a small minority of people, even when the men preaching it were Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, and other gifted men. And these little hirelings that are doing it are not gifted men like them. We sometimes meet people or read about people who held truth on some points, maybe many points, and yet... We must come to a point in the road with them where we differ from them. Amen. And it's hard. But we must be established in the truth in every respect. Amen. In every point of doctrine the Lord has shown us. We have had some depart from us. And they love to share with us their testimony that they are closer to the Lord than they have ever been. And I would like to say to you again, I hope I've said it before. I know I have to some of you in private. Your personal relationship with the Lord, in your opinion, has nothing to do with truth whatsoever. Amen. It is never taught in the Bible as a measure of truth. Because your personal relationship with the Lord can be subject to all your feelings and emotions and influence and brainwashing and having been told you're closer to the Lord and the volume of the music played by the praise band. Truth is measured by one thing, and it is the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. It doesn't have to do with how close you feel to the Lord. Of course you feel closer to the Lord when you're able to get rid of a ministry that is constantly pointing out that you are a failure in the Lord's sight. Please, why are we separate? Why don't we just fold up and join Brookwood? You know, I could have maybe get involved in their Harley ministry. Get a Harley. 
for Jesus. Why don't we do that? Because we're convicted about aspects of truth that make us separate. We don't like to be different. But we're going to follow God's Word, and if that makes us different, so be it. So help me God. Why are we so strict? Asaph would say in Psalm 73, my life is totally different from the wicked. They get to run around and do whatever they want. I have to cleanse my hands every day. They have strength in their death. And yet I'm constantly worried about my relationship with God. He saw that it was a a strict religion that was painful at times. But then he came into God's house and he was reminded that their end is very different from his end. And he decided that it was worth it. It was more than worth it to hold to the truth. We're thankful that our brother Jonathan is back safe from India, but he had quite an experience there, and I've shared just a brief moment with you. And we want to be thankful for the truth of God that has saved us from such blindness and such darkness that we are not bathing in the filthiest river on earth called the Ganges in order for eternal life by reincarnation. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Truth is right. Error is wrong. And every statement made by men is either true or false. It's either right or wrong. It's truth or it's not truth. This is a popular passage that I'm going to take you to this morning for a little while. You have quoted it, most likely. You have heard it many times. But I want to make sure that you understand every clause in it, maybe every word. And it's John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. I am going to leave your reading last night to be sufficient for you. In remembering the encounter between Jesus and the woman of Sychar, who was a woman of Samaria, meaning the nation of Samaria, the place of Samaria. Let me read you these four verses, and then let's look at their words. John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Jesus Christ is sitting at Jacob's well. He was wearied from his trip, and a woman of Samaria came out to draw water, and he asks for a drink, and they have a little exchange, and these are part of the words of that exchange. The disciples have gone into town to fetch bread for them to eat. Verse 20, she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Amen and amen. Let's take up these words, brethren. I want you to understand this passage. This is a Great encounter in the Bible. It's recorded for us in detail. This woman of Samaria gets almost the entire chapter dedicated to her. And we want to see what Jesus said to her and how this exchange took place in order to teach us more about the truth. 
and why we hold to the truth and why we're different from other churches and why we're different from other religions and why we're different from other denominations. The first thing she said is our fathers. When she said our fathers, and our is a plural pronoun, it means more than one person, she's not referring to Jesus and her. She is referring to her Samaritan fathers. And I want you to understand this passage because it is it is significant. There are two religions here, and they're very similar. Very similar. They are following the five books of Moses, both of them. They both use mountains. They both had temples. And they both sought to worship the Lord in all caps, meaning Jehovah. And I want to tell you a little bit about her fathers. Now, she had already mentioned to the Lord that there was a pretty big difference between the two of them based on nation or nationality and religion. And it's in the ninth verse. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She understood that there was a great difference between the Samaritans and the Jews, nationally and religiously. Now, Jesus is sitting in a well only 30 miles away from Jerusalem. But to go from Jerusalem north up to the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth and Capernaum where he spent his younger life, he had to travel through Samaria unless you wanted to make a big loop around it. And so he went through it and they were tired and they stopped and they're 30 miles from Jerusalem. And we want to remember this. These, these places are relatively easy to find in the Bible. And she says, our fathers. She's already recognized that there's a difference between her and the Jews and that Jesus should understand that difference. One of the lowest things that the Jews could say to Jesus after they said he had a devil and after they said he did his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, were to call him a Samaritan. Thou art a Samaritan. You know, that was getting down and dirty. And they called him that. Remember when Jesus gave an explanation for the commandment, the second commandment of God, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The good Samaritan. Jesus told a parable about a Samaritan that was good. And that Samaritan that was good did what? He found a wounded Jew in a ditch and took care of that wounded Jew, though that man's own nation of Levites and priests passed by on the other side. Do you know how deep the Lord went into their racial, national, and religious prejudices with that parable? I love the Lord Jesus Christ. The person that you despise on whatever grounds your enemy is the one that in this particular case Jesus is teaching is your neighbor in answer to a lawyer who wanted to nitpick the religion of Jesus Christ by asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus went to a Samaritan versus a Jew and showed the Samaritan to be superior to the Jews. I hope you all understand that. It's deep. It's powerful. It's the way our Lord Jesus Christ talked. No wonder Isaiah tells us that God gave him the tongue of the learned. Quick of understanding. The Bible tells us, yes, indeed, amen, our fathers. Would you turn, would you hold your finger or put a piece of paper in there at John chapter 4 and flip back with me to Second Kings chapter 17 because we want to read about her fathers. Second Kings chapter 17. She starts off 
by drawing a distinction in their upbringings. I belong to a different nation, and my nation, and my ancestors, and the leaders of my nation worship on this mountain. And you Jews, you have different fathers, you have different ancestors, you worship on a different mountain. You worship in Jerusalem, which is on Mount Zion. This is It's coming down to two religions. Let's compare them. She's saying, you know, I know there's a difference between the two of us, but I'm not going to back down easily. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And they believe that they were worshipping Jehovah, and I want to tell you a little bit about them. Because I want you to understand this passage, appreciate it, because that's my job. To read in the book and the law of God distinctly and to give the sense. In Second Second Kings chapter 17, we have a lengthy explanation of an integration movement by the king of Assyria. And what happened here is that God judged Israel, otherwise known as the ten tribes, sometimes called Ephraim. God judged those ten tribes of Israel, first of all, by ripping them away from David in the days of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Then, because they had pursued idolatry more zealously and more faithlessly than Judah had, he sold them into slavery. He flat out rejected them. He dumped himself of the ten tribes. He got rid of them. And he sent Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. He sent Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He he sent Asnapper, another king of Assyria. And this chapter tells us about how they came, besieged the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the ten tribes, capital city, and then took them captive. And I want to read verse 6. In the ninth year of Hashia, the king of Assyria took Samaria. In the ninth year of Hashia, the king of Assyria took Samaria, the capital city of the ten tribes, and carried Israel, meaning the ten tribes, away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan, and in the city of the Medes. Now you can find that he took 27,280 captive and put them in those cities, leaving a number of the Israelites still there. But then he did this, that we can read down in verse 24. Now the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. So we have Israelites taken out of the land that God gave them. He had promised it to them by an everlasting covenant. Yes, it was an everlasting covenant if they obeyed. It was a conditional everlasting covenant. They disobeyed, so he took them out and put them in the cities of Babylon several hundred miles away in what we would call Iraq today. And then he brought... Babylonians and Assyrians from those cities and planted them in Israel. Now this chapter goes on to describe that these new Assyrians and Babylonians living here, and because the land had been overrun by the Assyrians for some time, and there hadn't been cultivation and hunting taking place like usual, there were a lot of excess lions. And the lions began to wreak havoc among these Assyrians who were living on God's property. You don't want to camp or encroach on a property line where the Lord has drawn the property division, where it's His land. And you can read about this here in verses 25 through 33, that they came here and they didn't know how to worship. 
Let's look at verse 25. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. They didn't care about Jehovah. They had the gods of their fathers from Babylon. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. God's serious. You're on His property and you're not worshiping Him. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. It must have been demonstratively true that God was unhappy with them. This wasn't just a chance event. These were lions that became man-eaters extraordinarily quickly and universally among the lion population. And so they asked for help. So the king of Assyria, in verse 27, commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So they're taught some of Moses' ceremonies and rituals. Howbeit, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made. This is the only occurrence of that word in the Old Testament. The Samaritans, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. Verse 33, They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. So this priest comes and gives these people some of the ceremonies of Moses. You know, they kept the Passover and they worshiped Baal. So they feared the Lord in an outward ceremonial way and they worshiped their idols. This is an amalgamation of religions like we live in today. As Eastern religions make their influence on America, like Roman Catholicism and mysticism make their influences on formerly Protestant denominations. Here's an amalgamation of religions. They feared the Lord outwardly, but they kept on serving their idols. That's a Samaritan. They're not pure Jewish blood. They're not pure Assyrian blood. They don't have a pure worship of God. And so I want you to know when she said our fathers, who she's referring to. She's referring to a unique, a unique group of people that maintained their presence in that location, and there are still some there today. Samaritans. They have the Samaritan Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, that they have, bless their hearts, altered to make them the chosen people of God. Just like the Jehovah's Witnesses do with their Bible, called the New World Translation. So that it says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They've altered the Bible to support their theology. And so have the Samaritans. And the Samaritans had done that Oh yes, a long time ago. Because they were the true worshipers of Jehovah. Josiah came along in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I'm just going to summarize this for you. There's, there's more that could be said. I'm just going to summarize it. Josiah came along in one of his revivals. And the Bible tells us that he went throughout the land of Israel and destroyed their high places. So he set them back on their worship of idols. So their worship of Jehovah he didn't touch. And at that time, things were going very well in Judah so that the percentage of their worship moved a little bit closer to the worship of Jehovah because Josiah did such a dirty job on all their pagan idolatry, tearing down their high places, destroying their idols. And the Bible tells us that in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. 
But they kept on right up. In, look at verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers. So do they unto this day, meaning the writer of the book of Second Kings. The Samaritans were still doing that. Now look at Ezra, the little book of Ezra. When the Jews were eventually, 150 years later or so, taken captive by the Babylonians and hauled off to Babylon, but after 70 years, God kept His promise to them and brought them back to Jerusalem. Now when they come back to Jerusalem, the Samaritans have been there, you know, for 150, for 70 years without them. They immediately want to get involved. So they come and offer their service as loving neighbors. What did Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and the others think of him? Well, well, let's find out. Let's trust the Word of God. Let's not get racial here and be prejudicial without Bible basis. Right. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of, oh, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity Build the temple in the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Now, are you able to remember everything I've said all so that you know that these are Samaritans? Referring to a king of Assyria that brought them into the land of Israel. And we've been worshiping Jehovah since then. We hadn't done it before. It's been our religion since the king of Assyria did something to us and brought a priest to Bethel from the captivity in Assyria. Are you with me? But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, <laughs> Oh, brethren, how much do you love the truth? Amen. Are you able to handle someone that comes to you? And is your next door neighbor and says, I love Jesus just like you do. I've been worshiping him for three generations. My grandpa was a Baptist pastor. My father's, my grand, my great grandfather was one too. My great grandmother was a Methodist, but she loved the Lord. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, ye have nothing to do with us, to build a house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. And if you were to read the whole book of Ezra and the whole book of Nehemiah, you would find these Samaritans being thorns in the side of these Israelites, these Jews of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin that had come back from Babylon. I love verse 3, and it's why I'm preaching to you. Right. Do you love the words of verse 3? Amen. These are great men. These are God-fearing men. These are God-sent men. These are God-called men. Ye have nothing to do with us. Our mountain of Zion, our city of Jerusalem, and our temple to the Lord God Almighty, to Jehovah, is unrelated to you. Get lost. There's two books of the Bible about this conflict of them trying to hinder the building of that temple. 
Now, the leader of these people at this time was Sanballat. And one of the priests of the Jews had married his daughter. Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah chapter 4 that I chased him from me. (laughs) Praise God. You know, there are men before us. I chased him from me. As soon as I found out that he had married a strange wife, are you familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah, how they had a national day of divorce? Because they found out that many of those Jews had come back and married foreign women that were around the city of Jerusalem. And so they had a national day of divorce. The Bible tells us they had children. And this divorce court didn't care if there were children involved or not. Get rid of those foreign wives. And I chased them from me. Though he was a priest. Now the Bible ends. Because there's 300 years of quiet between Malachi and Matthew. So you have to go to Josephus for whatever this is worth. Josephus said that this priest and Sanballat, his father-in-law, comforted each other, and Sanballat, the head of that of the Samaritans there, said, listen, we'll build a temple on Mount Gerizim. And so they built a temple trying to duplicate the temple that was being built on Mount Zion by the Jews, on Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is in the Bible. It's one of the mountains situated one side of a valley with the mountain Ebal. And their God told, six tribes go over here, six tribes go here, These tribes read and pronounce the blessings of the Lord from Mount Gerizim. These six tribes pronounce the curses of the Lord from Mount Ebal. Jacob's wells right there in the middle. Okay? Mount Gerizim. So this woman is going to say, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. This is a demonstrative pronoun referring to a mountain close or far. When you say this, close. When you want to say something far away, it's that, that mountain, this mountain. She's not referring to Zion. That was 30 miles away. She's not referring to Sinai. That was 300 miles away. In 129 B.C., bless his heart, the son of Simon Maccabees, John Hyrcanus by name, made an expedition into the Samaritans and went up to the top of their mountain and leveled their temple. And they didn't rebuild it. They just worshipped toward that holy place, aping the religion of God in every respect. They still keep the Passover to this day. Aping. That means to copy like a monkey. The religion of God. Do you know who's behind all that? The devil himself. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, ye know not what ye worship. I hope you understand part of what he's implying there. The Samaritans were bold then and have been bold since to declare that they are the proper descendants of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim and that by appealing to certain biblical accounts in their altered scriptures called the Samaritan Pentateuch, they can substantiate it. But now the Jews have taken great hostility at such claims by them when they know in the days of Jesus, that they were the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was their worship of Jehovah that was instituted by their prophet Moses. And so, the Jews and the Samaritans had these great differences. Now let's look at these words and see if they don't mean more to you. I want you to understand, there are two religions, only a few miles apart, so that they're neighbors. There is a geographical connection. There is some limited racial connection. And there is a great religious connection because they're worshiping the Lord. (laughs) 
But the, but our Lord cares about details. He cares about your priesthood. Where did their priesthood come from? The lowest of the land. It says that in 2 Kings chapter 17. They made the lowest of the land to be their priests. But where did their first priest come from? They jerked him out of one of the ten tribes. He didn't come out of the tribe of Levi. He came out of one of the ten tribes, was brought back from Babylon and instituted as a priest to teach them a few basic outward ordinances so that the lions would get filled with something else other than Samaritans. And so here we are in John chapter 4. Our fathers, our fathers, my mommy and daddy were Baptists. My grandpa was a Baptist. Do you know how many times I've heard that in my life? My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. So, what does that have to do with anything? Did he go to the church of Christ before he died? Did he worship Saturn at the winter solstice while he was a Baptist preacher? Our fathers. There's only one criterion for truth. And you hold it in your hands. And God gave it to one nation and one nation only. The nation of Israel. And these benighted, blinded souls did not have it. I want to listen to these words. God doesn't owe the truth to anyone. He gives it to some by gracious privilege. He shows His word unto Jacob. Speaking of the Lord. He showeth His word unto Jacob, His statutes and His judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. That ought to evoke a hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord on the basis that God gave His Word and His religion, that is Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, to only one nation, and He did not deal so with any other nation. That's the truth of God's Word. We don't apologize for that. We're humbled by it. And we praise Him and bless Him and thank Him for every piece of truth that we have. That we are not trying to worship Jehovah on Mount Gerizim. We do not care what our fathers, our grandfathers, and our great-grandfathers believed. We care what the Word of God says because our Father in heaven seeks such to worship Him who will consult Scripture and not family about what is right or wrong. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain 30 miles from Jerusalem. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Gerizim. And ye say, ye, plural, meaning the Jews, the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now Abraham and Jacob had surely worshipped there around Jacob's well. Obviously, if it's called Jacob's well, Jacob had been there at some point, And Abraham had been there. And they had, it's the city of Shechem, and they had had dealings with the Shechemites, that were there. She's referring to this mountain right that was right there by them as they stood there at Jacob's well. This mountain Gerizim, where the Samaritans worship, which the Bible tells us, and it tells us about the mountain of Gerizim. You know, some religions put a ridiculous degree of confidence in a place. The Muslims want you to take an annual pilgrimage to Mecca where you can worship the Kaaba, but what is the Kaaba? 
It's a meteorite that fell down from heaven that they worship. Go look it up. It's a black stone. And they have a little black marble house built around it. And it's the biggest event of the year. And we'll be going to Malaysia when they finish their pilgrimage and celebrate. We'll be there for Ramadan and the other events. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And you know, she was quoting the Jews correctly. Jerusalem was the place where the Jews were to worship because God had picked that mountain and God had placed His worship there. God had told them way back under Moses that the place where God has chosen to put His name, that is where you're going to take your offerings. That is where you're going to take your sacrifices. And it was Jerusalem. God filled that temple that Solomon built on that mountain. So we have two competing religions, both using the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, on two mountains, 30 miles apart. One developed over several hundred years by its ancestors, and the other a few hundred years longer than that from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down through Moses. Now, they're quite compatible in some respects. And we meet people today who are somewhat compatible with us religiously. We meet other Baptists. We meet other so-called Protestants that are different from Roman Catholicism and, and like us in some respects. And it is our duty to take every point of doctrine that we believe and to try it on the anvil of Holy Scripture right. with a hammer and a fire Amen. to see if it will hold up. Jesus will say that shortly in other words. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now she has said that I perceive that thou art a prophet in the 19th verse. And so she knows that this man to whom she speaks is wise enough and has God's blessing upon him enough that he was able to tell her, you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. Now that's a lot of detail. How many women like that are there in the world? It's a very small percentage. That is statistically significant as a point of identity of this woman. And Jesus had pointed that out. And she she's bold enough to affirm her faith to this man she perceives as a prophet, identifying the difference between them. We believe that it is this mountain that pleases Jehovah, and you believe that it is your mountain and Jerusalem that pleases Jehovah. And do you know who she's speaking to? Jehovah. Right. Is she going to figure that out before this chapter ends? God. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Is she going to go into her city and cause quite a stir? Amen. That Messiah has come and He didn't come down from Mount Gerizim? That He's come from Mount Zion because He's a Jew out of Jerusalem. Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, woman, believe me, Brethren, do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that's written in the Bible? We have a head of our church. We have a father for our church. We have a great bishop for our church. We have the great shepherd of our church. We have a cornerstone for our church. We have an apostle for our church. We have a high priest for our church. We have the greatest prophet, the greatest apostle. He's everything to us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Jesus saith 
All the answers, definitions, and doctrines of our religion come from the founder and the head of it, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we go to measure and try everything. Whenever we turn to the epistles of Paul, we understand that Paul received the things he wrote in those epistles by direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that everything we have in our 27-book library of the New Testament is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the doctrine which is according to godliness, sanctified and ordained by Him for our instruction. He speaks to the woman. She thought Him only a prophet, but even a mere prophet was better than anything that ever stood on Mount Gerizim. Right. <laughs> Samaritans. Jesus is kind to her. The apostles are going to marvel. They know there's a difference between these two nations. When they come back with their bread, it tells us about it in verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? They didn't interrogate either one of them. They just stood there. They trusted their Lord that whatever was taking place between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman was a good thing. They didn't say, what are you doing talking to our master? They didn't say to him, what are you doing talking to this Samaritan woman? It's there in the Bible for you. It caused a little stir. They marveled. But there our Lord is. Does he have respect unto the lowly? Did we read that somewhere today? Do you feel lowly? You're closer to his respect than if you feel good about yourself today. He knoweth the proud afar off. He knows the difference. He can smell it. The difference between arrogance and humility. The difference between lowliness and pride. Let us fit Psalm 138 and verse 6, that middle clause, and be the lowly ones that he has respect unto. Woman, believe me. By these words, him saying, believe me, he is about to drop something pretty significant on her. And he does. Woman, believe me. The hour cometh, I am talking about a future change, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He grants her, this is just a passing thought for for you, a passing observation. And this is helpful if you want to learn the tongue of the learned. Grant their argument where it doesn't hurt your argument. He said, neither in this mountain, granting that she thought she worshipped the Father there, neither at Jerusalem shall they be worshipping the Father. He's going to say his hard statement in the next verse. But thus far, he allows her argument to establish his. That there is a religious change coming, that Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, it doesn't matter. That Samaria or Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. The true worship of the Father, the true worship of Jehovah, is going to be different, and it's not going to occur in either place. Do you know that there are preachers today all over America begging for money for building projects in that city of Jerusalem? When Jesus said 2,000 years ago, the hour cometh, and what's he going to say shortly? The hour cometh and now is. It had already started that that city in the Middle East called Jerusalem is not where God is worshipped nor ever shall be again. It's been given over to the Gentiles to trod under their feet.
Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. My brethren, our Lord Jesus Christ right here introduces to us the great Reformation. This is the Reformation that counts. This is the Reformation that bore the most fruit. This is the Reformation of God's blessing. This is the the Reformation of Moses' law, Moses' religion, to the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. From the church in the wilderness to the local churches of Jesus Christ. From the altar in Jerusalem to the altar in heaven. To the high priesthood of the Levites to a high priest from the tribe of Judah. And the list goes on and on and on. This religious change is earth-shaking. Amen. Isn't it? Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 says that I will shake the heavens and the earth and the desire of all nations shall come. That is prophetic, metaphorical, picture language of an earth-shaking event religiously. And it occurred. The Apostle Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29, that those words of prophecy by Haggai had been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We now have the permanent form of God's worship that will never be altered again, except to move us from one location to another and glorify us. But we now worship in spirit and in truth an internal religion compatible with the spirit that God is Himself and truth as revealed by the God of heaven through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's being declared here to this woman. We learn about it by the writings of Paul and we get it filled out to us. You know, the Bible does tell us in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, 30, 26 to 30 AD, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Jesus is telling her this. As he tells her, woman, believe me about something. You just called me a prophet. Let me make a prophecy. The true worship of Jehovah is not going to be on Gerizim and it's not going to be on Zion. It's not going to be in Samaria and it's not going to be in Jerusalem. Verse 22, ye worship, ye know not what. You poor Samaritans don't have a clue about proper worship. You say, that's not very nice. You know, at our company, we've been told that there's there's a couple things that we're not supposed to discuss. Religion and politics. Well, These two are discussing religion, and here's what Jesus has to say about her religion. Ye worship, ye know not what. You Samaritans don't have a clue. He sounds somewhat like Zerubbabel, doesn't he? And Jeshua, and Nehemiah, and Ezra, from back there in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ye have nothing to do with this. You're imposters. Your religion's a joke. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. We Jews are different from you Samaritans. Jesus did not say, isn't it wonderful that we both love the Father? Jesus didn't say, I'm glad that we both worship the same God. Jesus did not say, don't you love the five books of the Pentateuch? The books of Moses? 
Ye worship, ye know not what. Are you willing to say that? Do you know that? How do we know when people are worshiping what they know not? Because it doesn't agree with the Bible. That's what made all the difference for the Jews so that Jesus could say, we know what we worship. How did they know what they worshiped? Because they had a written revelation from God on how to worship and that He was the one to be worshipped. Their whole covenant was in writing. <clears throat> ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. God's dealing with a covenant people is of the Jews. It's made through Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. It was made on Mount Sinai. It wasn't made on Mount Gerizim. Salvation and redemption in this world and the world to come is by covenant of Jehovah with His people. And we Jews know that because we have it in writing for us. You don't. You worship, you know not what. Are you able to say that? Are you able to recognize that? Are you able to look at another religion and realize they have corrupted things? They don't have a clue. Right. What are their priests in the Catholic Church for? The priesthood was destroyed with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There's only one priest left. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made all of us kings and priests. You are as much of a priest as your pastor is. We both have equal access into the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no veil between us. The blood's already been taken there. You can run in there as I spoke to someone in the last couple of days. Every five minutes. The high priest of Israel can only go in there once a year and then with shed blood. And fearful at that, we can go boldly into His presence, every one of us. You worship, you know not what. The Catholics are so messed up. The Jehovah's Witnesses are so mixed up. Go read the prophecies of Charles Taze Russell and Judge Rutherford. Go read Charles Taze Russell on all the work he did in the Great Pyramid of Egypt because he thought in the Great Pyramid of Egypt there was a revelation of God's will. Why would you go to the darkest, blackest, most obscure, poorest nation on earth to find truth? God's left that nation of Egypt a mess. He promised it would be a mess perpetually, and it is today. If we ever went to war with Egypt, we would send the New York Police Department. And it would take them one day. Forgive me for getting off track a little bit. But when I, you know why? It should irritate you. It should anger you. You should want to say what Jesus said. Ye worship, ye know not what. Amen. And we see it all around us. Verse 23, but the hour cometh. He goes back to his prophecy of a future event. And he tells us that it has already started. But the hour cometh and now is. Because this is the time of reformation. Those words, the time of reformation, I want you to see them. They're Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. In the first nine verses of Hebrews chapter 9 are listed the furniture and the ordinances of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 9. And then it says, the Apostle Paul telling us what all that stuff back in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy meant, he said, which stood only in meats and drinks, external religion, Something that you can see, taste, smell, and cut with a fork and a knife. Meats and drinks. Which stood only in meats and drinks. The Old Testament religion was external. 
It dealt with your body. You heard it. You tasted it. You smelled it. You saw it. You cut it. You burned it. It was incense. It was a, it was an animal. It was blood. You carried it. A grain offering. A meat offering. A drink offering. It was extra. It was robes. It was pretty. It was ugly. It was loud. There were trumpets. There were symbols. All external. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. See outwardly. Washing, 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 washing. And carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. And the time of reformation began with John the Baptist. He popped on the scene and he didn't say go to Jerusalem. He said come to the Jordan. And he baptized by immersion in the Jordan River. And he announced the Lord Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah that was going to be a priest and who was greater than John and who would baptize them with the fire and with the Holy Ghost. This is the time of reformation. The hour cometh and now is, woman, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is what I want you to understand, and it is this simple. That is not the Holy Spirit, nor is it even related to the Holy Spirit. That is a little s. There's no definite article in front of it. It's your spirit. It means internally, because God is a spirit. And that doesn't mean God is the Holy Spirit. It means God is a spirit in that God doesn't have a body. That's why there is no image in heaven or on earth for us to picture God by. He is a spirit. He doesn't have a corporal body. He doesn't have an appearance. He doesn't have an image. He can choose to appear as different things for limited occasions. But He is the invisible God, the Bible tells us. And for us to worship Him is not to take this external worship of washings and sacrifices and smelling and hearing and seeing. It's not external. It's internal. He is a spirit. A spirit of the character traits and the virtues and the graces that make up God. And we are to take our internal hearts where we think and love and adore and worship and obey Not outwardly, but inwardly. We take all that we are inwardly and we worship that infinite, invisible spirit in the New Testament. In the old, you just showed up on the right day bringing the right thing to have them put it in the right kind of fire with the right kind of robe on in the right order of the ceremony. God doesn't care about any of that stuff. Do you know what He wants when you come in here? And do you know it is precious in His sight? And He will never refuse it. A broken and a contrite heart. I wish I could crawl inside of every one of you. This is a glorious message. It is why we don't have musical instruments and a whole lot of other things. Why there's no stained glass behind me. Why there's no steeple with a cross on it. Our religion is in our spirit. Because God wants the real you. He does not want this external you. He doesn't want you going through the motions. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants where you can make a choice of what's important to you. Not the outward compliance. Oh, the Samaritans were good at the outward compliance, but they did, ye worshiped, ye know not what. And Jesus said, the true worship isn't even going to continue in Jerusalem. Brethren, which was the right place 
and the right altar and the right priesthood and the right scriptures. They had not altered their Pentateuch. Their Pentateuch was perfect. But when God says a change has taken place, we had better make that change or our worship is unacceptable. The Father seeks such to worship Him. I hope I am making this as clear as it can be made. Like falling off a log. I have preached this before, but I am taking extra time on it. I want you to know exactly about this exchange of two religions that were highly compatible, 30 miles apart, neighbors, a woman, by herself. Did Jesus show mercy on her and say we're all going to the same place? Did He say let us both join our nations in the ecumenical movement? This is why we're alone. And I hate being alone. I'd have guest preachers in here every quarter for you if I knew who to call that would get in this pulpit and declare the Word of God without compromise on any point. I'm not afraid of Him one bit. There's only one thing I'm afraid of, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and measuring us by His Word. I hope to, and I trust, because of Romans 11, that our blessed Lord Jesus Christ has 7,000 that have not bowed the need of the image of Baal, nor kissed him throughout the world. And every time they write me, and you wonder why I get so excited about someone that writes us, it's because I love to know that there's someone else out there that God has spoken to their heart, and they hate Baal as much as we hate him. And they may not know the way of God as well as we do, but we're going to try to help them. Just like Aquila and Priscilla helped Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures, who was fervent in spirit and who was a mighty orator, but he still needed to be taught the way of God more perfectly. And a, and a man and his wife, tent makers by trade, took him home and did it. Why? Because they had the Word of God. And you're able to do that. But you've got to pay attention and listen. What a blessing we have right here. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. When he said in spirit, he condemned his own nation. He condemned the worship that was in Jerusalem. When he said in truth, he condemned the Samaritans on Gerizim because they weren't doing anything according to truth, even Old Testament truth. They were wrong, wrong, wrong. And he said it. The Father seeks such. When the Bible says that God is seeking for a man, Ezekiel 22.30, when the Bible says that God is seeking for true worshipers, what does it do to you? Are those just boring words to you? Or do they light you up? If God's seeking that, I will be that. And I wasn't always that. But I will be that. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. In spirit, I will give Him everything I have. I will speak to Him in the middle of the night where my body can't be seen by anybody. My prayers can't be heard by anyone. I will talk to Him and give Him my spirit. And I will defend His truth wherever I am. No matter how small the company of people that I fellowship with it becomes. But if the Father seeks such to worship Him, I will be that worshiper. I wish those words would light you up. If the Father is looking for something in this world, I want to be number one out of 6.8 billion. I don't want to be number one in trading profits. I don't want to be number one in career development. I don't want to be number one in popularity. I don't want to be number one in anything but this. Out of 6.8 billion... That man gives me his spirit, and he loves my truth. And if I go to my grave, 
with 10 or 20 of you that are able to make it. Oh, I'm smiling on the inside because my inside is outside my body and it's in heaven. Are you with me? I'm smiling on the inside because I'm meeting my God and I'm thankful. I'm more thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ than anyone in here because he's washed away more sins than anyone else in here. But that's part of the truth. And so I forget what's behind. And I believe that forgiveness. I want you to appreciate this exchange between the Lord of glory and this woman of Sychar, this Samaritan. And all he is saying there is, woman, I want to tell you, you called me a prophet. Let me give you a prophecy. Religion is about to change dramatically. No longer will it be a place. No longer will there be an altar on earth. No longer will there be a city. No longer will we need a mountain. My brethren, we are coming to Mount Zion, which is above the heavenly city, an innumerable company of angels, the spirits of just men made perfect, and blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And Abel was a decent sacrifice, one that God accepted. And on and on we could go. Woman, gurism is false. You don't even know what you're worshiping. You do not have any written revelation from God for what you're doing. And we should be able to say that to anyone. You do not have any Bible evidence for what you do in your church. You cannot support that from the Bible. Ye worship, ye know not what. The Jews don't worship in spirit. They're just going through the outward motions of these sacrifices and all the carnal ordinances. Carnal means related to the body. When you have carnal knowledge of another woman, what does that mean? I'm trying to help you with words. When you have carnal knowledge of a woman, what does that mean? That you write her a letter? No, you're in bed with her to have carnal knowledge of her. Because you're discovering her body. Carnal ordinances, washings, all outward, hearing trumpets and cymbals. Trumpets and cymbals don't cut it with God. Do you know what kind of music he wants out of us? The melody from our heart. Old Testament wanted trumpets and cymbals because it was outwardly. This little distinction about our church while we don't have musical instruments is significant. It flies right in, to have a musical instrument flies right in the face of this. Because it's not in spirit, there is no spirit in the piano. The piano moves your body. Elton John plays the piano better than any pianist you've ever sat under. And he moves your body. What was Jimmy Swaggart's brother? Cousin. Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, he can rock a piano, but it makes your body rock. God doesn't want our bodies that way. He wants our spirits. And then we lay down our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not in outward worship, but a living sacrifice of denying them because our spirits are committed to Him. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. God's looking for those kind of worshipers that will will understand that my worship is in my heart, that my worship is in thinking about the words of this song that I'm singing, not in the part that I have chosen to sing, nor in the vibrato I have chosen to apply, nor in the volume with which I sing, but it's a melody in my heart because I love God. I love His Son, Jesus Christ. I am thankful for His grace. And so we make the melody here, and that gets to heaven. 
We don't even make the melody here, except we have to to sing. Because by definition, the word sing, the verb, the English verb sing, means to speak words with a melodic tone. And to adjust that tone. We don't hum it. We don't moan it. We don't chant it. We sing. And so we do make a singing noise, but we start with a melody right here. And this is right, it's taught right here in this passage. True worshipers shall worship. There was, there was a 40 year period of transition from John the Baptist to the destruction of Jerusalem. For 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. For 40 years, external worship in Jerusalem ran contemporaneously with internal spiritual religion. And men could keep both. That's why the matters of Christian liberty were, were very difficult at Rome in chapter 14 and other places because both religious systems were being kept. When Paul went back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, Acts 20 and 21, when Paul went back to Jerusalem, remember, he kept a vow and he went into the temple, a place on earth, in Jerusalem, right. on their mountain. But he had already been fully converted, hadn't he? But see, both systems were running side by side and James begged him, would you show the Jewish brethren who've been converted that you haven't altogether flushed everything of Moses? Will you take a vow upon yourself? No problem. When he met Timothy, he circumcised him because both were running side by side. How'd they end? Very obviously, God wiped them from the earth. He put his arm out on the table of the old covenant and wiped everything off the earth in 70 A.D., when Titus tore down their temple, tore down their altar, destroyed their priesthood, and there's never been a sacrifice offered in Jerusalem again. God is a spirit. He is not a corporal being. He is an invisible spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of our religion, the head of our church, the founder of our religion, declaring to us that God is a spirit. Therefore, As the apostles would say, there's no way that you can build him a temple because he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He is a spirit being. And so we worship him with our spirits. We give him what he has made in us that is like him. And that is our spirit where we have all the character traits and the love and the desire and the worship and the praise that that comes out of a heart. Not just our lips. We do not want to stand in here on Sundays and just sing because everyone else around us is singing. And if we don't sing, we're going to look foolish. We want to have come prepared that our hearts are in His worship. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him by these two criteria. Spirit, the inner man, truth, the written revelation of God. That is the whole passage. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. The five books of Moses tell her that. The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. The seed of Abraham, Genesis 22. Shiloh, Genesis 49. A prophet like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18. I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Really? You mean you need something more than your fathers? Ungarism? We can't get inside that woman. But a little change is coming over her where she's admitting that she needs a Messiah, the Christ, who will tell her all things. 
and that the Samaritans were dependent upon that Messiah as well. I know that Messiah is prophesied to come, and he's called Christ, Christos, the anointed one of God. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto that Father that you're trying to worship in Gerizim or the Jews are trying to worship in Jerusalem. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Amen. Amen.